We're recording. Apologies for the delivery scooter men revving outside my window. This is Beyond the Pass. Conversations with people from all walks of hospitality life. Centering mental health, Beyond the Pass is a conversation about life, hospitality and what makes us get out of bed each day. Welcome back to Beyond the Pass. We are so excited to be sitting down with Merle Kammerling. Merle is a London-based chef and a qualified integrative therapist. They are the founder of Me, Myself, and Mind, which provides workshops, one-to-one therapy, and group facilitation specifically for the hospitality industry. Welcome, Merle. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I would love to start just knowing how you got into the industry in the first place. Uh, well, I came to the industry a little bit, well, I say late, about 25, 26, but I, I don't know, when I first started, I felt super old in the kitchen. Um, but I've been in the industry, I know my first job uh, in the industry was when I was 14. I worked in a Spanish tapas restaurant in uh, Derbyshire, which uh, sort of uh, reduces the exoticness of that, I suppose. But um Yeah, so I've been in and out of the industry a long time since the age of 14, then dipped into it again when I was studying, doing my GCSEs and my A-levels. And then um, my partner's also, he's in the drinks industry, so I've, you know, I would help him. Um, But for the first chunk of my life, I was in in the fashion industry. Um, And then at sort of 25, 26, I just really had enough of that and uh, was just desperate to do something that was more, something I would enjoy. So I ended up um it, that's how I started in the industry and I just completely fell in love with the kitchen um just a little bit before the kitchen uh I did go back on the floor to whilst I was figuring out what I was um going to do after fashion and then um yeah I just asked my uh head chef at the time if I could do a few days I was already volunteering at this point at a ba- in a in a, a bread bakery so I was waking up at um half past three in the morning to make my way over to Chiswick from Finsbury Park which is quite a long way away to volunteer in this in in this uh, bread bakery and learning about bread and starters and all that kind of stuff and I just loved it um and then I just said to my chef head chef of where I was doing front of house at the time you know could I come and do some work in the kitchen so I was really I loved pastry at that that point at the beginning of my um career so yeah I did two or three days in the pastry section and then they offered me a full-time job after a few months so I was just stoked I was just like completely excited and it was just so nice to uh, throw myself into something and that's how it began really and did you like had you cooked in your life and had an interest in food in your life or was it something sort of like seeing it from the other side of the path and being like I think this would be a great experience or I think this is something I'd love or did it come from sort of further back um you know uh so my I'm half Filipino so my mum's always you know been very sort of passionate about food and, and the kitchen um the love for pastry really started with my grandma so she was um would 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 bake the classics so you know the scones or the scones depending on where you're from you know I'm from near bake I'm from near Bakewell so the Bakewell tart you know um all those kinds of things so the smells of baking and I guess it was comforting um at that, that time I was you know I think whenever you're feeling professionally conflicted about where you want to be in your professional life I think it throws up a lot around your identity 
and you know it can make you feel a bit low so actually before I got into the kitchen um, I just started baking to make myself happy whilst I was trying to figure it out and that's when I was that's when I thought oh I love this could I make it into a into a job and I think that happens quite quite a lot right that people have Mm -hmm. that sort of train of thought often and I think it is unique in the sense of I mean depending where you want to work but something like fashion I imagine like a lot of the arts industries where there's so much gatekeeping and in a kitchen if you show up and work hard they want you there and there's it's just such a different energy to like, okay, I'm going to have an eight interview process. I'm going to get there. I'm going to organize mail. It's like, if you show up and you graft and you're talented, you can rise really, really quickly. Yeah. And that's the thing. Uh, it's certainly in my first sort of uh, paid role or one of the first of the paid role. It's just that sort of recognition that you get, um, the trust. Um, and really for me, it was the encouragement and you know I've been I've been really lucky I feel that I've had that throughout my cooking career was I've always had people that were you know um, encouraging in one way shape or form and you know especially I think in the beginning as well I think you really need that I think you need that encouragement that trust to be have some sort of creative freedom it doesn't have to be anything big you know about changing the menu or I think you, you know you can you can give your staff some creative freedom um, to help them grow and stretch. What would you say was your favorite thing about being a chef? And what was your least favorite thing about being a chef? Like you're crunchy and you're sweet, you know? Sweet was the camaraderie and the team. I just loved that. Um, And I have some great friends in the industry because of that. Um, My crunch is the sleep. The sleep for me, I, I, that was. I mean, I mean yeah, it, it, at times like my wheels came off because of the sleep, and it, and it, and, it, and, it, and my wheels still come off if I don't sleep. Um, it's it's one of those fundamental things. Um, that that still takes time and effort and remembrance that that is important and um, definitely a pillar for me. What was it within that experience that? And maybe there's one incident or maybe it was sort of an accumulation. But what was it that got you thinking about mental well-being working in the industry or in a kitchen? You know, I can't really talk about that without really sort of disclosing on some level. Um, Is that, you know, when I got into the kitchen, um, I was already going through something. So in my personal life, um, something that I hadn't addressed and something that I'd sort of avoided through just working through fashion and it I guess part of that was happening again whilst I was getting into my new career in the kitchen um and I ended up yeah having to go to therapy and that really was a game changer for me so you know we talk about a lot about you know how the the industry and those environments can really exacerbate well can be problematic to our well-being and our state of mind but also think one thing to remember as well and remind ourselves is that that, you know I think you have people such you know like myself that also come into the industry with issues anyway and that lifestyle just exacerbates already maybe a fragile state um so so I started my journey with therapy again like I said game-changing 
and then um, I, I mean, it's really cheesy. And I, you know, I, whenever <laughs> I get asked about this, I'm like, oh, a bit cringy. But I was in, I was in a, a therapy session, and it was just like, literally a light bulb moment. And I just thought, this is the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. Is this journey? And it wasn't just a few sessions. That you know, this was like months of therapy, and maybe not almost, maybe a couple of years. And I just thought, I'm going through this profound change and this person is helping me and supporting me and if I can do that for others then that would give me the ultimate joy and you know I and then you you think that the the therapist has the cards right and has the answers and and is going to fix you but then you realize oh I did and uh, it is part of the therapeutic journey is that you're not you're not being fixed you're fixing yourself and that person is just facilitating that for you to be your authentic self. And there's something around that that I just think that's the greatest job that I could imagine have. Yeah, you know? absolutely. It's the facilitation. I'm not, you know, I'm not fixing people. I'm not, you know, rescuing people. I don't have all the answers, but I'm allowing that person to figure it out with them themselves. But I'm on that journey as well and just facilitating that and when you did decide to retrain and be a therapist, I mean, it's such a different pace of life than being in a kitchen. And I wonder when you were starting to train, did you always have it in your mind that you wanted to focus on folks that were in the industry or did that sort of come later? So that came much later. So the real focus was just anyone, you know? being you know I all I had as a visualization was me being the therapist and having the knowledge and the tools to be able to and the qualification to do that um it wasn't until maybe sort of more towards the end of that training um that I realized that there wasn't really anything for the industry so when I so I started training right at the the beginning was 10 years ago and then it wasn't until later on in that training I realized that actually I think I could be useful to hospitality, you know, because it's that unspoken language. And I still have that with clients today in sessions, you know, or just that they have that preference because I have that experience and it's therefore they're not having to convince me or tell the story, lay out the story of how it feels because I know. So there's that, un- there's that, that's, there's that, silent understanding and compassion for that person because I have personal experience and I have been witness to how it feels but yeah that wasn't in the I that that wasn't the um plan in the beginning to to help hospitality professionals but so so when I yes when I started 10 years ago there wasn't really anything and actually when I started the business in 2018 there still really wasn't that much and I and that's when I mean even now I still think there isn't enough (laughs) No, definitely not. But it is, it's unbelievable when you, the difference between 10 years ago when you first started training and the environment now and the culture around it now, where not to say that there isn't a long way to go, but it's unbelievable when you think of how there was nothing. Like, and it, there was literally nothing. Yeah, I mean, to, but I think to put it, but I think that has to be said for the fact that, that I think there were things, but I just didn't know. And I don't think... Mm. A lot of people knew. I mean, well, and I think that's part of the issue. So it's not to say there weren't great businesses or folks that were sort of working in this space. But, you know, if you worked in London restaurants for I worked in London restaurants for five years, I never 
knew that there was any support available. I didn't even know what an EAP was in that time. And I was up to a management level. So I think that that's the real like shift in the wind is not just that there are folks that are providing help. It's that people actually are starting to talk about them and know what they are and have access to them in a big way. A hundred percent. You know, I, I, I think hospitality action has been going for, for, for decades. It's just that we didn't know that, but also I think with the, with the birth of Instagram, there is more, uh, possibility and opportunity to to be present right within the industry without that I mean without that for me I don't think a lot of people would even know I exist so yeah but I'm so excited that the the industry is moving in this way yes I I think it could move a bit quicker um I think it could get a wriggle on but you know but it is moving and there are some great people and organizations moving into that this space and I think there's room for everyone to do something, to do something, you know, and change and 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 change change the game. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what me myself in mind does? I'm obviously a wee bit familiar with you, but just for the folks listening who may have never heard of it before, the prime parts that services of the business are is that I deliver one-on-one therapy sessions to hospitality professionals. So I run sessions online, and I also run them from. Um, a practice in North London. The oldest service that I've been providing before I even qualified as a therapist was is the is my signature workshops really, and uh, the well the main one being Be Kind to Mind, which is um, a workshop around educating uh, others on stress reduction, self awareness, and mental health awareness. So combining that into a workshop where they can have uh, a space to reflect and think about themselves and also have an experience around that and learn some tools on stress reduction and how they can help themselves. I think that's so interesting too, is providing the one thing that when you're really working on the floor, when you're in the kitchen that you completely lack is the time to literally consider yourself. Mm -hmm. I don't know how people strong arm it into their days, but I don't think that that space is set out. Mm-hmm. even like never mind like a one-on-one with a supervisor that sort of feedback but the idea that you're giving folks on the floor an hour or two hours or four hours to actually think about how they are how they're reacting what they could do differently it must yeah. be incredibly powerful yeah I mean I think I think people you know they're, they're taught how to uh, deliver service the order of service you know how to you know what's what's the ethos, um, how to cook the menu, right? But not really taught how to manage or there's no education that's available really within the business to help that person educate, be educated and uh, on how to manage themselves and their lifestyle because it is a lifestyle. And I think that was the part that, you know, for me, that's the part that I really struggled with was, you know, the the lifestyle um, and the boundaries around that and what was healthy, what was not. And I wasn't thinking about tomorrow. I was thinking about the now and actually just kind of having a moment to think about my, you know, what, what's my, what are my common symptoms when I'm in a stress, all that kind of stuff. I didn't, I wasn't thinking about that. And also when we're in, when we're in stress, we forget all the things that are useful to us and helpful and healthy. So when I, when I'm stressed, um, my exercise goes out the window for me and actually that's like that for me is one of you know is so fundamental is that is that movement um and for me breath work is fundamental for my um 
my uh, fight or flight response. I need to be, and I, but I didn't know all of this stuff before I was training. So, you know, to give someone that though that knowledge, those tools. Yeah, because you know, something that I it's always been a mantra for me because I've been trained in this way as well. Is that um, you know everyone is trying to cope to the best of their ability with the knowledge they have to do so. And I still believe that everyone's just trying to cope in the best way that they know with what they know. So if we can change that knowledge and increase that knowledge and enhance that knowledge, then we can give people more options. And then they then they can choose from that, you know, from that toolkit. You also you bring up something really interesting that you kind of touched on before. It can be a little bit dicey to shine light on. So I don't think we do. But I do think that the intensity of the work and the fact that it does sort of take over your life it does end up attracting a certain kind of person, perhaps people that are in transition that are trying to avoid other stuff. I mean, a career in hospitality for myself was like an elaborate act of avoidance that worked incredibly well. Um, And so I think there's sort of a combination, and this is definitely not everybody, and I would never suggest that, but I think that combination of having folks that are more inclined to perhaps lack boundaries, to not spend a lot of time paying attention to themselves, to sort of hyperfixate on things outside of their own experience, that combination of things without the tools to manage them, I think you can really see directly like why for so many people, and statistically we know this, that rates of poor mental health are so much higher for folks that are in the industry. And I think it is sort of that combination of factors. I'm wondering if there are things that you feel or things that you've seen that you think are sort of universally experienced by individuals that are coming from hospitality and then in therapeutic space. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly seeing uh, the overwhelm. Um, A lot of um, dysfunctional relationships within within the working environment um you know I think I read a really interesting article which I think was in the for in Forbes magazine which is around you know that managers have an impact on our mental health more than anyone else within a working environment so even if you're seeing a therapist if you've got a manager that is is unhealthy towards you in some way and that, that dynamic then that can really impact you know because you're under their influence for so many hours of off your week and day and months and I thought that was quite interesting um I would certainly say that there is a massive um uh pattern of disconnection through uh working with the hospitality professionals disconnection from themselves and also can be a disconnection towards others as well because of their of because of their shift patterns as well so that isolation and the loneliness that people are feeling I think is real um, and I know that's not just an industry thing, that's a society, you know, um, pandemic in itself, but certainly that there is a, there, uh, that is very common. Um, but also, you know, I work with a lot of individuals that are trying to find their way back to themselves. You know, they identify with the fact that they don't have any boundaries in place or, or not many um they've identified that they don't want to work in this way anymore that they don't want to work these shifts and back-to-backs they're identifying with the fact that you know there's some you know maybe some unhealthy toxic relationships that are happening 
people are so I think that the people are starting to realize and wake up uh I think because I don't know they feel like there is a change through the generations of the industry wouldn't I mean I, I don't know how what are your thoughts on I mean I think it is remarkably different and it's it's just something that we hear a lot at the moment from employers saying we don't know what to do with these young people these people that are coming in and they're 19 and they're 20 and I think at in the worst perspective folks are like they don't they don't want to work they don't seem to want to work and trying to negotiate the fact that there is a real different approach in the way that young people perceive themselves and their identity and what they're owed and what they deserve quite frankly as human beings and as workers versus what what we did and generations above us certainly but they are very unwilling to sacrifice themselves for the sake of a job Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I think is like the healthiest thing I've ever heard in my life not everybody agrees and some people think that it's the death knell of the industry if people aren't going to sacrifice 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 I think that the only way to survive is by adapting and I think that what's in front of us is this real opportunity to look at what's being demanded of employers and really rise to that challenge and figure out different ways to work Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because realistically every other industry every other sort of long-term industry in the world has had to do that at some point Mm -hmm. and I believe that hospitality is sort of in that kind of moment now and it needs to take hold of it Mm -hmm. because there isn't another option there isn't an alternative there isn't a different workforce coming and Mm -hmm. so if you exclude the needs of people that are young and that are demanding a work-life balance if you exclude the needs of parents who need flexible working if you exclude the needs of people that want a job share or whatever if you exclude the needs of people who have different learning abilities there is nobody else to do the work so what's the plan so you can rest on your laurels but i don't think you're going to get very far but i think it's a very interesting negotiation between those generations Mm -hmm. and i think you know I mean, I, I can I can agree with, you know, I, I do agree with a lot of what you're saying. And also this is about uh, retention, right? And if you mm-hmm. want to retain people, um, and this is a mass attitude of, I don't want to work this much and I want more time for myself and my family and my loved ones and I want work-life balance and all that kind of stuff, then mm-hmm. if you lean into that, then you will retain your staff. What, you know, mm-hmm. what is always such a, a crazy thing right is that the employee employer doesn't want to do that or feels that they can't and therefore there's just a lot of turnover of staff and mm-hmm. unhappy staff and it, it's just the road to nowhere um, I agree with you and I think that there's also an important part of this puzzle where I think it something that you brought up earlier is it's about giving people the actual information that they need to understand what's going on in their experience Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same thing with businesses. So when somebody comes to you and they're like, I can't do clopens or doubles are really hard for me. They're not saying that because they're lazy. They're saying that because some element of that is having a bad effect on their physical health or on their mental health or on their family life. And all of those things are interconnected. 
So if somebody comes to you and asks for an accommodation, any kind of accommodation, and your assumption is that they don't care, that they're not loyal, that they're lazy, you're not paying attention to what human beings actually need in order to thrive. Mm-hmm. And some of that is lack of education. So when we go in and we do mental health training with an employer and they're like, oh, holy shit, this really has an impact on my staff. When I'm asking them to stay three hours later or come in three hours earlier, and then all of a sudden everybody is feeling more depressed and more anxious. And so all of a sudden I'm losing staff or people aren't showing up for work or folks are in crisis and it creates this huge problem. And it's like, oh, if I just didn't do this one tiny thing, I could prevent all of that. And I think that, yeah, it's something about when you can really understand how mental health works and the ways that it escalates and the ways that you can prevent it from escalating and how simple those things can be, you'd be so foolish not to integrate that into your business. I think also, you know, there's a comment, there's a theme there, isn't there, of what you're talking about is, you know, is factoring empathy into your business as well. Mm -hmm. And also, I think managers and employers having more of an of addressing more of their um of how much they're putting on so in terms of you know I think the people that um have a tendency to people please and be the ones that will stay forever mm-hmm. you know will lead get leaned on more and it's about mm-hmm. you know where does that end when when mm-hmm. as a as an employer haven't you got the isn't there a duty to to you know to acknowledge their dedication and say that's enough you know but that doesn't happen we keep on leaning on those people and they just, and they break. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's also complicated when, I mean, I was absolutely that kind of employee. I was there first. I was leaving last. There isn't anything I wouldn't take on. I would, you know, like very sort of typical hospitality mindset. And I was so deeply rewarded for that both in terms of camaraderie and connection with the people I worked for and with, and also financially in terms of promotion or raises. So it sends a really poor message and something that now having so much more information, I look back at my time and I'm like, I don't doubt that I was a good manager to my team, but I also know that I modeled horrible behavior in terms of self-care and preservation Mm -hmm. and take like horrible and there were no other examples. And I think this is something that's starting to change is that there's been really people within the industry who are quite vocal and also just on a personal level, people level, people that are really modeling good self-care and then continuing to be rewarded and being celebrated by the industry and being celebrated by their businesses. And the mm-hmm. fact that you can do both, that you can take care of yourself, you can take care of your team, and you can also be totally kick-ass and stay in the industry and build this great career. Those things didn't, they used to be antithetical to each other. There is really a shift in the wind. And I think at this point, you know, I, I want to say that I don't think it's impossible to have a great career in the industry. You know, I don't think it's impossible but I think what it takes is for you to listen to yourself and find someone that is like minded that you that has the same or similar values mm-hmm. as a business. Because if you're not going to call that out and, you know, and say, I'm not happy or this isn't working for me, that bi- rarely does that business do that for you. If it's the, you know, that that business that isn't maybe working for you. And so, so unless we we acknowledge that um, and not avoid that and listen to ourselves, I think again with the stress of the industry and all that we can become so disconnected from ourselves or why we're really doing it in the first place you know 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, if I could have told myself one thing or even members of my team or younger people when I was a little bit older and people were working for me, I wish I had felt more wholeheartedly that other experiences could be better. Because when we looked around at each other, the solution was to leave the industry. And if somebody got a job outside the industry where they were sitting down, we would cheer for them. We'd be like, you've done it, my God. (laughs) Why wasn't the conversation, what other hospitality business can I move to? What other restaurant can I work at where I'm going to have a different experience? Mm -hmm. But none of us knew that it could be any different. Mm -hmm. Why would we? It's sort of like a Stockholm syndrome. Like, Yeah, it is. And, you know, I've seen that a lot in the time that I work one-on-one with people, that people, you know, are like where am I going to move to that's going to be any better than this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It doesn't get any better. But actually, I, I disagree. I think... Me too. Have a look, you know. Step mm-hmm. out of that micro bubble of, of your place of work and just explore. Just have a look. You don't have... You know, it's not... It's not disloyalty. It's just exploration. You know, you're just seeing what's out there. And sometimes I don't think that happens enough for a lot of people. And therefore, it's easy just to go with what we know. And we're all guilty of it. You know, I'm not, it's not about me saying that, you know, that there's a a divide between you and I. And what I'm saying is that we're all, me include, everybody's included in in that behavior, in in that behavior. Mm -hmm. I think you bring up something so interesting in that question of loyalty. How, I don't know, you probably have very smart insight about this, but what is it about the way the industry is structured that makes looking after yourself or like an exploration of options feel like such a betrayal to the people that you work with and for what creates that i mean i think it's also with the nature of who gets into the industry anyway you're such hospitable people pleasers or just that you have this want to create a great experience for everybody else and you get off on people's happy experiences and it's and there's something psychological that's happening there is that you know the way that we validate ourselves and the way that we value our own sense of self-worth is through something called interconnectedness now interconnectedness is um how other people view us gives and shapes us how we see ourselves so as an example if you've got a, a customer that's having a great time you get a dopamine hit from that because that that reflects, we think, that reflects, a, you know, something about ourselves because we've created that experience. And there's something about keeping a boss happy, um, making a difference. And you're such, in such a small, unique environment where it feels like a micro world that you're changing, that you, you feel like you've impacted that. It's like a baby to you. And therefore, you become so intrinsically attached to that place. There's not a real, you know, it's very easy to have the grey boundaries of relationship. You know, um, I did an article for Cam to talk about the the family feeling within a business. And and I don't think, I think there's two sides to that. I don't think it's negative nor just simply positive. But, you know, is that we can become, it can be quite dysfunctional, but there's a sense of belonging and that can be quite addictive. It's this sense of belonging because we need that as human beings as well. I think there's a few factors happening at the same time the conversation we have around should it be family or should it not there's sort of two like the other factor is that it also sets you up in so much isolation from your communities of origin whether that's with friends who don't work in the industry whether that's uh, people from school whether that's your family 
you end up being so isolated from people who aren't in the same pattern of work that you are that those bonds become even more important because it becomes the only thing you have and I mean I have a friend of mine who describes working in hospitality as having a really bad boyfriend (laughs) and when it's good it's so good and when it's bad you're like alone on the planet with like no tools and you like forget who you Mm -hmm. are and I think that's a really negative read but it's also I think quite a helpful metaphor when we think about how difficult it is to Mm -hmm. leave Mm And also how fondly whenever now, obviously, both of us are in positions where we work sort of hospitality adjacent. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when I'm in a restaurant and they're like, we're doing training or having a meeting, whatever, and they're setting up for service and everyone's coming in and they're saying hi and this and that. The envy that I get in my whole body of like, oh, I want to do that thing. It's crazy. And it's like everything else, all of the bad shit, all of the horrible experiences, they just are gone. Oh, I totally, I I totally relate because I still romanticize that. Even when I go for dinner, I romanticize that because, you know, a lot of my days are spent on my own. I mean, my clients aren't my mates, you know, my supervisor isn't my friend, you know, so it is quite sedentary to what what it used to be. And I do miss that. I can't deny that. I do miss that team team vibe but yes you start to romanticize all the good things I remember doing like stints in certain kitchens and being like you know this is really cool to say that I work at da 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 and other people would be like oh that's cool that work out of not in the industry be like that's cool da 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 and I'm like yes and then I realized but they're not the one doing the 60 hours just to say that I work in this really cool place you know I'm the one that's living here and it's a different it's a different reality. It's about time, isn't it? Like the amount of hours, days, and months that you lost. But fondly lost. <laughs> fondly lost. But Laura Burnett said something so interesting when we had her on the Women's Day panel, and she was saying, She's like, I spent the better part of ten years working eighty hours a week. 80 hours a week at my job. She's like, I can't tell you if I add up all those hours that I did that were above my contracted hours that were above expectation. If I totaled all those hours, it would be what years of my life, literally years of my life. And what else could I could have done as a 25 year old, a 26 year old, a 22 year old, 29 year old, whatever. What could I have been doing with that time? And what did I sacrifice that I don't even know that I did? Yeah, and yeah, I I hear that a lot in the therapy room. Is that is that sort of um, you know certainly people talking about you know that I've lost a chunk of time. I've lost you know celebrations with loved ones. I've lost crucial you know milestones because of because of and and a feeling of because of what you know where why and having you know and and the regrets um, and the grieving I suppose of of that loss of time. It's very interesting. And I think it also works in this positive way where it protects you. Like, I mean, I made some terrible choices as a youth, but I made significantly less terrible choices because I was so fucking busy at my job all the time. And there are plenty of nights I didn't go out and drugs I did not take because I was like, no, I have a double and I have to be back at 9 a.m. tomorrow morning. I actually can't. Right. So it's like in the very thing that sort of robs you of Mm -hmm. so much freedom in some ways sort of keeps you safe depending on like your disposition. And I mean, that's obviously a very personal experience to me. 
And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard to have conversations about what to do next, how to move the industry forward, is because there's a real division between was this the best time of our lives or was that an absolute horror show? And there's very little <laughs> consensus. It's both things. But I th yeah, you know, and I think it's, I don't know, I, I think about that saying, nothing's worth doing unless it's, what's the word, what's the saying? Nothing's worth doing unless it hurts your knees. It kills you. No, I, I. What is it? Um, anything worth doing is going to be hard. I can't remember the saying, but you know. So yeah, I mean, those times when you know you're really stressed in a service, and it stretches you, and it panics you to the, and you feel you're going to lose it, and that feeling of you know when it's over, and then you come together, you've done it together as a team. There's something really amazing about that, you know. That's. And actually, we, I did a training last week and we were just talking and actually, you know, the, someone who I'm training up at the moment, he was there contributing and he just was like, but there's something really addictive about that as well. It's like we're being pushed to the edge and then getting over it and coming together, which is quite addictive. You know, it's that adrenaline of like ah, it's out of control and then getting it back together and then service is over. But actually, the repercussions of that as well. Well, it can be quite, you know, over time, doing that over and over again. You know, humans are designed for short bursts of stress. But the thing is, is that we're just in this complete cycle of stress all the time with not much break. And actually, that is that's what causes problems, burnout, you know, breakdown. Did, did you find for yourself when you left the kitchen, did you find yourself chasing? Like, what did you replace that feeling with? Well, so when I left the kitchen, it was just a natural ending for me because my last job was at Sambal Shiok um, with Mandy Yin and um, it was COVID so um, I was part-time by that point because I was already running the business and um, I was actually pregnant with my second kid so it was just like you know Mandy was like I can't keep you but also I, I was like well I'm, I'm, I'm actually pregnant so I can't come back anytime yeah. soon yeah but what did I replace it with um children <laughs> yeah I can understand how that's a very similar vibe <laughs> truly yeah and it's so funny one of my friends who um she's in the film industry and she's a, a creative director and she said to me oh Merle you know what you know like the film industry they work long hours you know mm -hmm. it's relentless mm -hmm. you know you have to be focused hyper focused and it's just and she was like Merle you'll be fine with kids because you've done shift work mm -hmm. I mean I mean this is on a different level <laughs> of shift work yeah that's interesting the assumption that you'd be somehow prepared yeah I fucking wasn't prepared but yeah you know in the terms that you, you know it's a different no one can really prepare you for you but yes I I suppose I kids you know it just I am the business I became busy in a different way if I allow myself you know the same patterns can come in you know that kind of like working hard not taking breaks so I I really have to stick to a healthy routine or literally my wheels do fall off so you know I need breaks I I, I do a lot of breathing work meditation I exercise for me that's these are like my pills you know I have to I have to take them because otherwise I, I can't function and especially when you know now I'm working in a different way I'm working more with you know uh emotional yeah I have to you know I'm, I'm 
do more emotional work and work with trauma and things like that and I have to look after myself because it's like you know putting you on your oxygen mask first in order to help others barrier that we hear sometimes from folks who haven't taken sort of one step on that journey to like finding those tools is that there's so many different types of help so many different types of therapy and it's so overwhelming um, and obviously everyone should go and see Merle Kammerling for their therapy needs but is there a type of therapy or a type of support that you think for somebody in the industry would be the most helpful so I can only really talk from um, my experience and what I know. And, I'm, and and there's so many modalities of psychotherapy and therapy. So there's about 550 modalities out there. And, you know, we are quite restricted to talking about several, but there are so many different uh, approaches out there. The ones that, you know, that have worked for me and, you know, and what I specialize in, and I'll talk about maybe a couple that, you know, that I know of, but I don't necessarily, I don't use within my practice. So what I, you know, um, the type of therapy that I give is person-centered approach. So per person-centered therapy is very much under the mind of, you know, that the, the client has the answers and it's about offering that client um the opportunity to bring those answers or be have you know a, a place where they can really reflect and have that place th that session is just a facilitation of allowing them to um to think for themselves they have the answers you know the therapist draws that out of them in a kind and compassionate way um that it's it's person centered led very heavy on on the talking aspect uh that's what person-centered therapy is about but I use an integrative approach so um, I, use, I also use mindfulness-based cognitive therapy so mindfulness-based so um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy is very much about you know allowing the client or getting the client in a in a really um, in a, a space where they are really connected to self they're relaxed Lots of um, it might be lots of meditation, visualizations, um, body scans in order to access the authentic self. And that I think that is so true is that in order to access ourselves, that we need to find a state of peace in order to get there. If we're super stressed, then, you know, we there is that disconnect and it's much harder to access that, that real self. So I use a bit of both. Um, person-centered as well as mindfulness-based cognitive therapies. I also, um, I trained in NLP, which is neuro-linguistic um, programming, which I, I think gets a bit of a, a bad gig, but actually there are some real powerful strands in that. I, I think, you know, uh, historically there's a bit of like a, a stereotype that it's used to like brainwash people, but actually it's not anything to do with that. You know, I know it's used in marketing, but actually I don't use it in that way at all. It's not about brainwashing and, and, and that's not true at all. But there is something around um, neuro-linguistic program. It's about, it's about understanding uh, how we speak to ourselves and the patterns of behavior. And actually, if we can, um, if we can, explore the language that we use to ourselves because think about how much time we spend in our head it's about 80 percent 90 percent of the time we spent in our head thinking and how we talk to ourselves so actually if we can uh, work on the language and how that inner critic works that can be really profound work as well um there's also psychodynamic which is very freudian work 
which is the you know working really with the unconscious mind um working with the ego um and the id or maybe you know the devil and the angel that is it's you know that's 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 like i guess where that's born but um that work is really deep but and it can take a long time but people get benefit from from psychodynamic therapy there's also cbt cbt um i think um from from qualitative research um sorry quantitative research that they've been you know that it, it has it does seem to um have um in terms of a benefit in terms of working with um our patterns of behavior that can really help as well so cbt is i would say seems to be the shortest you can you can some some therapists give cbt therapy within six weeks and that's supposed to really have an impact so if someone's looking for short and sweet something like that i guess short term might be quite beneficial but it doesn't work for every everyone but my approach also won't work for everyone so it's about really finding someone that works for you and an approach that works for you but really I'd say the fundamental part of therapy is the rapport and the relationship that you have with your therapist that you feel safe that you feel that there's a connection that you feel like you can authentically talk about yourself and you feel like you're able you know that you trust that person and it feels right you know go with what feels right to you if it feels you know if it doesn't if it feels a bit icky or jarring or you don't like the approach or the way that you know if then listen to that um but also you know if people are worried about the finances around it then typically most therapists give a sliding scale of cost or they do um, allow give allowances for low income therapy. So even if you find a therapist that you do like, but it just feels a bit too expensive, then don't feel afraid to maybe email and just say, look, you know, do you have any space for low? Do you offer low income, a low income rate because of, you know, because I'm not in the position to pay the full price. And that therapist can say yes or no. But typically on a lot of profiles of therapists, they'll say at the bottom what their prices are and also like, you know, whether they're given a low income rate or not. If you could make one universal change and it magically got implemented into every hospitality business, it can be realistic or unrealistic. What would you, what would that change be? Rotors. What would you do with them? I would like a routine rotor. So it, like, cause I, I think that would allow for routine. Um, I wouldn't have it. Um, so it's double, double, you know, open, you call them, what did you call them? Clopers. Yeah, I've yeah. never heard of that. It's so good. It's when you get to lock the door of the restaurant at midnight and then open it again six hours later. Oh, I love it. that. That's so it is actually, it's, they are, I've recently found out, illegal, which is information I didn't have when I was doing them. Yeah, I mean, I, for me, I, I, I definitely think rotors are definitely a fundamental um, part of the problem. So allowing people to have ample time to get rest. And maybe that's not always possible, but fair enough, people might have to do long hours and doubles, but actually allowing them a time to, to, to reset and recharge after that and recover. Because it sometimes is like a marathon, you know, doing all those hours and not having any time to rest and an opportunity for them to see loved ones. Um Again, so, you know, the rotor depicts everything, really. Sleep, connection, or the opportunity to sleep and the opportunity to connect, the opportunity to spend time doing whatever you want to do as, as an individual outside of work. 
um and boundaries i think it you know there's it it spells boundaries as well it's i feel like the most effective change i ever made was doing rotos on a monthly basis instead of a weekly basis so instead of knowing your shifts the sunday before the week started everybody got their rotas on the week before the month started and so they could make plans to see friends buy concert tickets change shifts if they needed to um that like i was shocked at the at the difference it made or even like i mean what an accommodation we hear about all the time is asking for consistent days off so if somebody does schedule therapy if somebody does have a yoga class if they do have a friend they see for lunch every thursday that they can have those days off consistently and the amount of employers that have and i've been in those rooms and i've had those conversations of that it's impossible is so crazy because i think it's an interesting question because you can be quite magical in your thinking and your answer what your change would be is so possible what would be yours i can tell that i'm interviewing a therapist because i never have to answer the questions <laughs> oh, do you know? um, no no I'm, I'm happy to answer i'm happy to answer what would be my magical change so essentially in north america because of the tip system there you can make if you're working at a like moderately high-end restaurant and I'm only speaking to front of house, but you can make anywhere from like 20 to 25% on your tables. You know, if you're walking out the door with $500 in cash in your pocket every night in your tips, and then you have your base salary, that's a good situation. So you can work three days a week or three services a week. And those are going to be long shifts, maybe eight or 10 hours, or you'll do lunch and dinner, whatever. But so three days on, four days off. I, I would serve for the rest of my life. I would wait tables the rest of my life if I could do it like that. And it was so jarring coming to the UK and being like, in order to survive in the city, I have to work more than 60 hours a week just to survive. And it is the fucking craziest thing I've ever heard because it is a job that requires so much energy it requires so much physicality. It requires so much emotional labor, both for your coworkers and your tables and for the kitchen and everything. So if you can take the burden of that experience and put it on the consumer, and then the money that's coming in as tips goes to you, and the better you do your job, the better you do. You tip out your kitchen, you tip out the bar, and everybody gets to work less. Because I think, I mean, I guess it's sort of similar to your answer, but you should not jobs that are this demanding you should not have it's not sustainable to then work as many hours as are required and live a life and have good mental health mm -hmm. and so i think what happens is that people that are really do love hospitality and want to be in it for a long time they will move up into management not because they particularly want to work in ops or they care about, you know, being doing recruitment, but because they need to get off the floor mm. because they can't handle the, the terrible money and the physicality of it. And so you lose people who have so much passion for creating experiences for people and like that whole all of those people go because they move up into an office, but they mm -hmm. don't move there necessarily because they have passion to sit there. They move there because the demand on the body and on time is simply becomes overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so then service overall suffers because 
for the majority, mostly there's going to be less experience on the floor or people that are depending on their jobs in a different way. And so then service in the country is terrible. And so people are like, you know, tips shouldn't happen because service here sucks. And so it's like this very like snake eating its own tail. Um, and so if I could make a universal change, this is a very long winded answer that got magically implemented. I would, oh, but it's hard because the money isn't there. But if it's magic, I would pay everyone enough that they could do three days a week and take four days off and make enough money to live. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Four days on, three days off, if, you know, it must be. But the difference would be immediate. But that's the thing, isn't it? It's like the, it's the knock-on effect of making a, sh- a shift like that. So it's about the rotor, but it's, it encompasses so much. You know, it, that it's you know it's it's the bigger picture. And what you're saying is that yeah, it's the three days or whatever, but it's the bigger picture of that and what and how that it's a ripple effect. You know, it's all of these all of these things that would make such a difference. And um, like you said at the beginning, a lot of these things aren't impossible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my idea is pretty impossible because the money just isn't there. But the idea of making very small adjustments as a business owner, like your opening times, your closing times, having a gap between services. So closing your kitchen for a few hours and making sure nobody's doing clopins, ensuring that people can rotate out for things like bank holidays or I don't know what the other, I guess, just bank holidays, but having those tiny little things in place where, yes, you're going to eat it a little bit economically as a business owner, those small, small adjustments to the to your team's schedules, to their rotas, you will become the place where everybody wants to work. And your customers would be very happy. I'm aware of the time, so I don't want to keep you too long, but we're just going to run through some quick fire questions. What is your favorite sauce? Oh, gotcha, Jang Mayo delicious um what is your (laughs) what is your favorite view in London it's got to be when you're going over um the bridges over the Thames and you can see um Tower of London and not Tower of London Tower Bridge and all through you know all the way all the way down the river going east and west I just love that especially in the evening when you're crossing over the over the river in the evening I love that It it just makes me think how how wonderful and magical London is. I know. I feel like every time I pay my rent, I then need to go and take my walk. And it's a direct antidote to that feeling. Um, what's your favorite dessert? Oh, creme brulee. It's exactly what I want after I eat. Like, it's just enough. Do you know what I think? And I haven't thought about this before, but just as we're talking about this, I think that sort of, you know, when you crack the... Yes. The... the um The sugar on the top, it reminds me of being a child and just loving cracking mm. a boiled egg. You know that crack? Mm, yes. I think that's what it reminds... I don't know. There's something quite nostalgic about that, even though creme brulee is much nicer than a boiled egg. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, who is your dream dinner guest? Oh, God. Um, oh, Jan- Jonathan Van Ness. I love Jonathan Van Ness. My very last question is just where can folks find out more about me, myself, and mine and all the great work that you're doing? Yes, yeah, so you can follow me on Instagram. Um, my handle is me, myself, in mind. Or you can uh, have a look at the website, www.me, myself, in mind, all one word, dot com. 
Fab, and we're going to link to all of those things in the description box for the episode, so you can also just go straight there and find them. Um, Merle, thank you so much for coming on. It was such a joy talking to you, and you're just, I think you're an incredible person doing incredible things. So. Oh, likewise, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me. Beyond the Past is produced by Kelly's Cause Foundation. For more information about Kelly's Cause, please head to kellyscause.com or find us on Instagram at Kelly's Cause.